everyone and welcome to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. So today is going to be a debate between Matt Delahunty and Cliff Connectly. The question is going to be, does God exist? You probably come across this question quite a lot in your life. Maybe you haven't. I'm not sure. But I know that if you have come across, this is really good information. And if you haven't come across it, it's actually pretty good to figure out where you personally stand. And if you ever come across somebody who challenges it, Cliff will be able to give you some really good information and you get to see how you think, how he thinks, and come to your own conclusion. But before we get to this debate, I would like to go ahead and ask you to go ahead and like and subscribe the podcast, Next Generation Saints, wherever you may receive your podcasting from. And tune in every Monday. I will be uploading a video. I haven't been able to get to other videos right now just because there's a lot going on and I'm trying to process everything at the same time to make sure I deliver to you guys um, the most accurate news information about Christian apologetics and what's going on in our world. So until then, hope you guys enjoy this and hope you learn something. My name is Dick Herman. I direct the Chi Alpha Christian Fellowship here at Texas State, uh, along with Dan Matlock, who's the lead pastor at Icon Church here in town. Uh, we're grateful that you are here. This is our second year of doing a bit debate uh, alongside with Cliff Connectly and Matt Dillahunty. We'll introduce them shortly, but first let me go through the order of the evening and tell you the format of what tonight will look like. We flipped a coin to determine the order with which uh, the opening statements and the closing statements, as well as the, uh, the uh, switching of questions throughout the evening, how that will take place. After uh, introductions, we will begin with opening statements. Each of the debaters will have up to seven minutes where they'll just offer their opening statements for the evening. Then we have sent them three questions that each of them have approved that are going to be asked and we will alternate those. They have up to five minutes to answer those questions. And then the other debater will have five minutes to also respond to their response to those questions. So once we conclude those six prepared questions, that's where your questions come in. So we will uh, give you the opportunity to uh, send those in, uh, followed by our concluding statements. And then we're done, hopefully, around 9.30 this evening. So, again, we're thankful for you being here. I'm going to turn it over to Dan Matlock. He's going to explain exactly how you can send in questions that may be asked tonight of our debaters. All right. First of all, I just want to thank you guys all for coming out here. Um, and let's also thank both uh, Matt and Cliff for coming out here. Let's go ahead and give them a round of applause. Thank you, guys, for coming out here. This is one event that we do want you to have your cell phones on. Mute them, but keep them on because that's how you're going to send in your questions. We have a uh, phone number up here. We're going to go ahead and put the other slide up. If you will text in that number, I believe, yes. If you can go ahead and write down this number, go ahead and program it in your phone. Um, uh, go ahead and do that now uh, so that you have this number. This slide won't be up forever. Um, but go ahead and jot this number down. Uh, the line is now live and open. So if you want to go ahead and text in questions now, you can. I would just ask that why both, while both uh, Cliff and Matt are speaking, let's be respectful of that and engage and listen and not just be dialed into uh, the text messages and Twitter. Um, so if you can go ahead and program this in, we're going to switch slides in here in just a moment. The phone number is up. We'll take these questions as they come. Please send your first name 
and your phone number. Um, we'll take as many questions as we can, and I believe that's it. I'm going to turn it back to Dick here. Thank you. All right. Well, let me introduce real quick our guests this evening. Mr. Matt Dillahunty to my right. Matt is a resident of Austin, Texas, and is here with his wife, Beth. Beth, wave your hand. Okay. She, uh, Matt is the former president of the atheist community of Austin. He hosts the live internet radio show, Nonprofits Radio. He hosts the Austin-based public access television show, The Atheist Experience. He's the founder and contributor of the counter-apologetics encyclopedia, Iron Chariots. And he also travels America speaking in formal debates to local secular organizations and university groups as part of the Secular Student Alliance's Speakers Bureau. So again, let's welcome Matt for being here this evening. To my left is Mr. Cliff Connectly. Cliff uh, currently lives in New Canaan, Connecticut, along with his wife, Sharon, and in close proximity to his three sons, who are all like you, in college in nearby universities. For the past 30 years, he's traveled to university campuses throughout America, dialoguing with students regarding theological and cultural issues. Um, much of these dialogues are documented on his webpage, givemeananswer.org. And for the past 12 years, he served as a senior pastor of Grace Community Church there in New Canaan, Connecticut. So let's welcome Cliff. So with no further ado, we're going to go ahead and turn it over to Matt to begin opening statements this evening. Cool. How's everybody doing? Good. Woo! Yeah, I'm hot. Uh, but I'm better this year. So thanks for having me. Um, we discussed a little bit what we were going to talk about, and really what we're going to end up doing tonight is kind of comparing worldviews. It's not really a does God exist. Um, it's, it's more about uh, Q&A, and we're trying to get as many questions as we can, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But I wanted to start off by talking about the fact that I didn't want anybody to be confused that we were comparing Christian worldview with atheist worldview, because atheism isn't a worldview. It has no dogma, no tenets, no authorities, no holy books, no individuals that we can point to, it is simply a position on a singular issue, and that is, does a God exist? Everything else is something else. And it doesn't inform us about anything. You can't get from atheism to any other position without adding something else into it. Um, I've used a couple of analogies before to kind of describe this, because a lot of it comes down, uh, for me, to the burden of proof. And I don't know how many are familiar, I found this on the way here today, you ever seen one of those big Imagine something like this, only much, much bigger, full of gumballs, and you're in a competition to try and uh, guess how many are actually in there. Everybody seen that or maybe heard about it? Yeah, cool, thanks. Um, so as an analogy, theists are claiming that the number of gumballs in the jar is even, and atheists are saying, we don't believe that, to which the theist might reply, oh, so you think it's odd then? No, that's not what I said. I said, I'm not convinced of your claim that it's actually true. I may believe that it's odd. I may not. I just may not be convinced of anything. Oh, well, then you're an agnostic. Well, perhaps, because atheism and theism are about a belief claim, and Gnosticism and agnosticism are about a claim to knowledge, and knowledge is a subset of belief. When we have these conversations, it's actually a little worse than that, because we're not dealing with just blanket theism, the top-level thing. We're dealing with specific religious claims, which is more akin to saying there are 522 
gumballs in the jar, not in this jar, but in, in the bigger jar. And then when I say, well, how, how, do you, how is it that you come by that information? Well, I, it's a matter of faith. Well, that's not the way we go about finding out anything in reality. Well, my great-grandmother was there when they filled the jar, and she took notes, and we know that that's the number. Well, I'm not, you know, I, don't, I can't have any way to investigate that. Well, a mathematician has actually calculated the volume of the jar and uh, the volume of each of the gumballs and, and determined that it's within this narrow range, and because we believe it's even, 522 is the way to go. Well, how do you know that there's not like a golf ball or something stuck in here that you've determined uniformity? And so there's all these little discussions that take place, and eventually it comes back to, wow, you just, you just believe that it's, that it's an odd number. Well, no, that's, that's not necessarily it. The second example or analogy that I've used before is a courtroom. It's a fact that there's even, either an even number or an odd number of gumballs in that jar. It's a fact that either a god exists or it doesn't exist. It's a fact that either the defendant in a particular case is guilty or innocent. The juries don't vote determine guilt or innocence. They vote based on guilty or not guilty. And so what we really got with theism and atheism is the prosecution, the theists, are claiming that God is guilty of existing, and the atheists are saying not guilty, which isn't the same as believing that, God, that it's innocent. I don't claim to know that there's no God. I don't claim to prove that there's no God. I'm not even necessarily sure that I would assert that there's no God. It, it would depend very much on which God we're actually talking about. By and large, we tend to talk about the Christian God in the United States in debates like this because Cliff's a Christian. Most of the students are probably Christians, and that's where we end up doing most of our discussions. By the way, I've used both of those analogies, and some people like the courtroom analogy better. Uh, some people like the gumball analogy better, and I'm here to say that the courtroom analogy is actually better, and the people who like the gumball analogy are heretics who need to be burned at the stake. Um, I, thank you, that came from my wife. I don't write my own jokes. Um, but I actually do like the courtroom analogy better because it, it, it demonstrates a lot about where we're going to put the burden of proof. Because one of the things we could do is we could have courtrooms where people are presumed innocent, until we demonstrate their guilt. We could believe in every single God claim until such time as we prove them false. That's an untenable situation. You would be simultaneously believing in contradictory claims about gods and, con and contradictory gods. You get nowhere that way, which is why we assign the burden of proof where we actually do. All atheists are not the same. As I mentioned, we don't have any tenets or dogma. You could be an atheist and believe in the power of prayer. You could be an atheist and believe in an afterlife. You could be an atheist and have any position on capital punishment, abortion, school loans, financing. It doesn't matter. None of those. What you will find in the vocal atheist community are people who tend to share some ideas, some, some ideals, um, but they're not necessarily derived from atheism. We're all bringing something else to it. I'm here tonight not just as an atheist, but as a secular humanist as a skeptic, as a science advocate, as a feminist, as probably a liberal progressive, and a thousand other labels you could apply to me that all come together to inform my, what my worldview is. I can't get anywhere from I don't believe in God to therefore I must blah, blah, blah without adding something else in between. And quite often it's a big something else. One of the things that I like to do is try not to paint with too, big broad, too broad of a brush. By the way, is Luke here? You don't have to be shy if you are. Uh, I got, I, somebody informed me of this interesting text message, uh, and I'm going to raise it just for a quick illustration. Uh, Texas State student says, President of Atheist Community in Austin 
is at Texas State questioning students if God is real. Really hope someone hits him. Now, I don't presume that that represents everybody, of every believer. Um, I'm not even sure that it represents Luke. I mean, you know, people talk and they say things. And so if there was anything that I'd add, it's to not presume that atheists are all of one mindset or that you understand them when we've already been determined by polling to be the least trusted minority for no good reason. Because people don't even know who we are. People don't even understand the definitions. Oh, you took prayer out of schools. No, we didn't. We took mandatory government-led prayer out of schools. You can't take prayer out of schools. They give tests. There's going to be a million prayers every time a test hits the table. Thanks. Billy was born with cerebral palsy, and he, in middle school, went to a junior high school summer camp. Middle school kids can be a little cruel, to put it mildly, at times. When Billy would walk down a path at the camp, and he'd ask a fellow camper, which way is it to the craft shop, the kid would twist his body like a pretzel and point in a hundred different directions and say, it's that way. But the cruelty reached its height when Billy's tent voted that he should lead camp devotions one morning. They knew the spastic kid with cerebral palsy whose body was twisted into a pretzel would make an idiot of himself. They thought it would be funny, really, really funny. So chapel came and Billy's turn came. The kid with cerebral palsy started at the back of the chapel and he started walking or stumbling to the front. And kids began to giggle and laugh. And when Billy reached the front of the uh, chapel, he turned around. And he began his address. Jesus loves me. Silence settled over those junior high school kids. Billy continued. Jesus loves me. One kid started crying. Billy continued. And I love Jesus. By that time, every kid was crying. Why? Because suddenly they began to understand the value of a human being has nothing to do with their GPA, nothing to do with their physical coordination or athleticism, nothing to do with whether their body is a 4, a 6, an 8, or a 10. Instead, we're human beings with an innate dignity that comes from the fact that we are created by God for a purpose. Not only that, but love is real. And love shows us that there is more to reality than matter and energy. And the only way there can be more to reality than matter and energy is if there is some type of God, some type of God, who creates this value, this un intangible value that you cannot put in the bottom of a test tube. You cannot slam it into a mathematical formula. It's an intangible value of love. And the reason that I know love is real is because of my experience in life. What is love? Love is the ability to freely choose to care for another human being. Not because you have to. Not because your sex drive propels you to. Not because you have a drive to preserve the genetic pool and it happens to be your child that you love. You can be a deadbeat dad or a deadbeat mom if you choose to. You have the innate ability to love. Why? Because there's more to reality than matter and energy. There's a free will that you have, this innate ability to choose. 
And you can choose to be apathetic, you can choose to hate, or you can choose to love. It's up to you. You see, the existence of love that every single atheist, every single agnostic, every single Hindu, Buddhist, Jew, Christian, Muslim experiences is a clear indicator that there is more to reality than matter and energy, than complex biochemical reactions happening between the synapses of your brain. You're a human being created by God with this incredible ability to love. So one of the pieces of evidence that I turn to when I struggle with doubt and when I'm asking myself, does God really exist, is my experience and observation of love. But you know, you and I are never going to really know that God loves us if God doesn't choose to reveal that. And that's where Jesus Christ comes into the picture. For Jesus revealed that God really does love. I was speaking at William and Mary University in Virginia. A student stepped out of the crowd and said, well, I believe in God, but not in Christ. I said, that's great. Tell me about the God you believe in. He said, oh, it's simple. I believe that God loves me. I said, really, how'd you find that out? Was it written in the sky somewhere? Did you conclude that God loves you by reading the morning newspaper or watching CNN? I doubt it. There's too, far too much suffering, evil, and death for me to automatically conclude on my own that God is a loving being. But Jesus Christ claimed to be God in human form, and he revealed that God really loves us. In fact, he loves us unconditionally. He loves us so much that when we got really confused and began to deny his existence and began to do our own thing and rebel against him, instead of throwing us on the trash heap of humanity and making a clone, which he could have done, he became a human being, he lived a sinless life, and then he bled and died on a cross to forgive us and to reconcile us to himself. Which means that faith in God is not simply intellectual assent. Oh, I think God exists. No. God desires to build community. God desires to reconcile estranged people and bring harmony and peace and community. And every single one of you who comes from a divorced home knows exactly how desperately you want that. Why? Because you're not a machine. You're not an animal. You're a human being created in the image of God who can understand and experience love commitment, trust, and loyalty. Now, why would someone trust Jesus Christ when he makes these claims? Why would one trust Jesus Christ? Well, Matt mentioned the word faith. Guess what, friends? Everybody has faith. Please prove to me that Texas State is going to grant you a diploma upon your day of graduation. Please prove to me that Texas State on your day of graduation is not going to say no diplomas this year. We're going to break tradition. It is possible. But the overwhelming evidence is that Texas State keeps its word. And if you complete a course of study and graduate, you will be granted a diploma. But let's be real honest with each other. You can't prove to me that on your day of graduation, Texas State is going to say, hey, we're going to break tradition. No diplomas this year. It is possible. But based on the evidence that Texas State University is a university of higher learning that is reliable and trustworthy, you guys are making a tremendous step of faith. And you're trusting this university with money, with your hard work, and your sweat to get a degree. That is faith, evidence of reliability plus commitment. So read the Gospels, examine Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead three days after he died. The evidence is he is reliable, which means faith in him is a very wise decision.
Thank you, gentlemen. We'll begin our first of prepared questions. Cliff, this one will go to you to start off. Question, is belief in God reasonable? Why or why not? If belief in God is, I believe, I believe, I believe, then faith in God is not reasonable. And unfortunately, there are people who say, I believe, I believe, I believe. And you ask them why they believe, and they say, because uh, 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 I believe. That is not biblical faith. That is intellectual naivete. The reason that a person should believe in God is because the evidence points to God's existence. The evidence of order and design points to an intelligent mind. The evidence that everything that has a beginning has a cause, the universe has a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause, points to the existence of an uncaused cause. The evidence of objective morals points to a moral lawgiver. The evidence of the amount of information in the DNA of a single cell demands an intelligent mind. The evidence that you and I are hardwired to understand meaning and purpose points us to the fact that we have been made for a purpose. Every atheist friend of mine is a wonderful person who has a purpose to their life. They have constructed that purpose. If they take their atheism seriously, what they have to acknowledge is that purpose that they have attached to their life is totally arbitrary. The opposite of what they believe is the purpose of life is equally valid. Why? Because ultimately there is no purpose if there is no God because we were not created for a purpose. We just happened here by accident. If it's true, if you believe we are here by accident, then live it out. Which means you can create your own purpose. No question about that. Obviously, we all do. But let's be honest. That purpose is ultimately meaningless. That purpose is an arbitrary decision that I made. So if I want to be Adolf Hitler II, if that's the purpose of my life, so be it. If I want to be Mother Teresa II, that's my choice. So be it. You see, if there is no God, reality is matter and energy. That's the whole story. And to try and argue that there's ultimate meaning and purpose to life is an exercise in futility. Now, I can create purpose, and all of my wonderful atheist friends create purpose. But what they have to acknowledge is that purpose is a taste. It's a personal bias. It's a prejudice. It's a taste. Similar to the question, do you prefer broccoli or beans? Well, my taste is for broccoli. Fine. Is your taste in meaning in life to feed hungry people? or to step on people, to climb the corporate ladder more quickly. One is not right, the other is not wrong, because life is ultimately meaningless. Now you can attach meaning to your life all you want. And obviously that's exactly what we all do. But if we're going to be intellectually consistent, we're going to have to acknowledge that the purpose that we attach to our lives is totally relative, totally arbitrary. So be consistent. Now, if I stand here and tell you, I'm a follower of Christ and I hate her, what is the word you're going to use to describe me? Thank you. Hypocrite. Why? Because you don't have to have a PhD in the New Testament to know that Jesus commanded his followers to love and respect everybody. So if I say I'm a follower of Christ and I hate her, I'm a hypocrite. All right. That word hypocrisy is a wonderful compliment, a wonderful compliment to the existence of truth to the existence of content of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to put my faith in Christ means that I trust him for heaven 
and I will trust him to tell me how to live my life. And Christ commands me to love and respect all people. Which is why John writes in 1 John, if I say I love God and hate my brother, I'm a liar. Now, do I struggle with hatred? Yes, but the operative word there is struggle. So is faith in God reasonable? You bet it is. Why? Because the evidence points to God's existence. Is faith in Christ reasonable? Yes. If Jesus Christ was a first century Jimmy Jones, David Koresh, I would not believe in Jesus. The reason that I believe in Jesus is because he taught an amazingly high ethical standard, and then he lived up to that standard. The reason that I believe in Jesus is he said, I'm going to die and rise from the dead, and he pulled it off. The reason that I believe in Jesus is because in my best moments, I try to live like Jesus, and I don't pull it off. I fail miserably. So when I look at Jesus at his lifestyle, when I look at his death and his resurrection, I am confronted by evidence that trusting him is very wise because the evidence is he is credible, he's reliable, he's trustworthy. Trust in him. So there was, there was a lot there. Um, and actually, within the first minute, we have the design argument, the first cause argument, or objective moralities, and purpose. And I'll just borrow from Christopher Hitchens and say that which can be asserted without evidence can be rejected without evidence and gloss past most of those. Um, you can find out more, by the way, at ironchariots.org, the counterapologetics wiki, where all of those arguments are addressed in detail. But I want to talk a little bit about purpose, because Cliff and I actually talked about this last year, the question that he kept asking me. And he talked about it today. And that is, oh, without God, ultimate, there's no, was it, was it correct word, ultimate? Ultimate meaning. Sure. So what? I find it really peculiar that there's this rampant appeal for, oh, ultimate meaning, ultimate meaning. I understand why people are interested in it. Cliff's already acknowledged I can give my life whatever meaning and purpose I want. But it has no ultimate meaning. If the government dictated what job everybody would have, we would revolt. If the university selected what your major was going to be, you would not like that. And yet, curiously, when you are told without any evidence that God has some purpose for your life, you rejoice in it. Why would anybody want an externally imposed purpose? Wouldn't you much rather be the captains of your own ship, the masters of your own destiny? Wouldn't it be better? Yes, you're going to end up with perhaps a second Hitler. But you're also going to end up with a whole bunch of people who are doing a whole bunch of good and who are taking credit for it and taking responsibility for their actions. I don't need nor do I want any externally imposed purpose from God or meaning from a God. I have enough as it is. It's enough to do good for good's sake. You take two kids who are in a restaurant and they're acting out and one of them is threatened with a stick and, and a reward if he behaves next time, and the other one is given a good grounding and empathy and understanding that his actions have consequences on the people around him, and so theirs have action, their actions have consequences on him. Somebody who understands how we as humans interact. And you bring them back to the restaurant, and they both behave. Which one's actually better? The one that's been given a carrot and stick? What's he going to do when that carrot and stick are taken away? Or the one who understands that being good for good's sake is actually beneficial? Now, there were a lot of issues that Cliff actually raised, one of the big ones being faith. And he seems to use his definition of, of faith early on, he kind of changed it a little bit when he went to biblical faith, but is belief 
without certainty. If there's something you can't be certain about and you believe it, then you're exercising faith. And I say, no. Faith is the way I, the way I use the term. Is Faith is believing something without sufficient evidence. Believing something without good reason. Because if you have good reason, you don't need faith. And you don't have to have absolute certainty to believe something or to be justified in believing it. If there was enough evidence... For the, if, if the evidence for the existence of God and the existence of Jesus and his death and resurrection were as well attested to as the history of, of uh, degrees handed out at Texas State, I would believe right this second. It is an absurd comparison. Anybody can go and talk to people who have degrees from here right now. You can go and check the actual history of this, and there's a good history. Plus, you can just wait and see what happens at the end of the year, and there would be this uproarious you know, revolt if you didn't get the degrees that you paid money for and that you studied for and that you earned. The evidence is not comparable. We don't recognize design in the universe by complexity. Um, I, it, there's far more to go into in, in all of those various arguments that we can, but the thing is, faith is never going to be good enough. Whether you're talking about biblical faith or the type of faith where you're just you're not quite sure. There's plenty of things we believe without being absolutely certain about. And you can be incredibly rational and evidence-based. There's virtually nothing that we can be certain about. Outside of esoteric claims and labels and the logical absolutes, you're done. That's it. What else can you be certain about? I'm not even certain that there's anybody else in the world except for me. We can't get around the problem of hard solipsism. But as a matter of practicality, I have to act as though there is. And I think there probably is, because otherwise it would be incredibly arrogant to think that I wrote every beautiful song ever. <laughs> Cliff talks about all the evidence. All the evidence. I haven't seen it. I keep hearing claims. Oh, but it's Jesus. And Jesus said he was going to die and be resurrected, and he was. How do you know? How could you possibly know that? No claim in a book can possibly be sufficient evidence to justify that. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And if the evidence for a resurrection is that a whole bunch of people have written about a resurrection and believed it, well, we're no better off than a whole bunch of people pointing to this jar and saying, we have always believed and we have it on good authority and faith that there are 522 balls in there. Thank you, gentlemen. The next prepared question is for you, Matt, to start us off. Where do you draw your morals from, and how do you live a moral life? Sure, and this is one um, where Cliff and I may actually have another difference in definition. Um, I would guess that if you were going to find morality, it would probably be um, that which is in accordance with God's nature or in accordance with God. Uh, for me, morality is about the well-being of thinking creatures. Sam Harris wrote The Moral Landscape, and while we don't agree on everything, um, we're pretty much in agreement there with regard to morality. I've given entire talks on not just secular morality, but the superiority of secular morality, and that secular moral systems are the only true moral systems, because religious moral systems are not systems. They are moral pronouncements. They are moral fiat declarations, whereas a secular system has within it the goal of not only getting better, but getting better at getting better. It's about the tools by which we, the tools that we use in order to determine what's best for us. Now, Sam Harris has compared it to health, and I like the analogy. We don't know everything about health. Our picture of health is constantly changing. It may be in the future that, you know, um, 
like, all right, I'm not the picture of health, but whoever's the, the biggest picture of health in this room may end up being sickly in the future. That, you know, you may not be the, the picture of health. But while we don't know everything, that doesn't mean that everything becomes about opinion and all opinions are equal when it comes to health. If it's your opinion that drinking battery acid is, as a general rule is good for people, you're just wrong. And if it's your opinion with respect to morality, that it's just generally good to own other people as slaves, you are just wrong. And it doesn't matter if you point to the Bible, which actually endorses the owning of other human beings as slaves, as your moral authority. I'm baffled by, I was a Christian for 25 plus years, was studying to be a minister. Um, this is one of the sticking points. There's always this claim to a personal relationship, and God is revealed, and God is written on his heart, and all of these other things. And yet you have this book that is the only real thing that anybody can point to in order to have discussions amongst each other. Because Revelation, as Hume taught us, is necessarily first person, and everybody else it's hearsay. And so we take a look at these things, and you've got clear endorsements of actions that we consider to be immoral, pretty much universally. Was the Bible wrong? Was it right and morality changed? Is, are things moral because God says so? Or does God say so because they're moral? Does God change his mind? Instead, in secular moral systems, you can begin with some very simple, and in some cases, obvious presuppositions. One of them being that life is generally preferable to death. People who don't agree with that aren't going to have a whole lot to say when it comes to morality. If you'd rather be dead, go for it. I, I, I feel sorry for you that you're going to miss out on all these wonderful things. But life is generally preferable to death. Health is generally preferable to sickness. Pleasure is generally preferable to pain. Those are not absolute truths. They're not true in all situations, and they can come in conflict. But if you begin with things like that, then you weigh the consequences of your actions on yourself and on others to the goal of building a society. We are stuck here on this rock cooperating. Cooperation is beneficial. Clifford mentioned something earlier. I wrote it down. Um, oh, I forgot what it was. But uh, <laughs> that, that makes for good TV. Um, but this idea that uh, you could just have whatever goal you want, yeah, but some of them are demonstrably better than others. Better for you, better for us, and yes, those things are going to come in conflict. Does anybody think that it's a good idea to own other human beings? Does anybody think it's a good idea to subjugate women and keep them at a lower tier? I, there's somebody somewhere does, somebody somewhere used to, and somebody used to do it as a tenet of their religion. And we have built upon those foundations and grown. And I think that the reason that, because uh, there's nothing in the Bible against slavery, and the reason that Christianity and Christians have by and large given up slavery is because they were dragged kicking and screaming into the 20th, well, at least the 19th to early 20th century, by secular progressives around them, the pinnacles of free thought, the pinnacles of the free thought movement, who valued human beings equally. This idea that God loves everybody unconditionally? Am, am I going to heaven? I have a pastor friend in Austin who thinks I am. And there are probably some others who think I am too, once saved, always saved. And there are others who think I'm going straight to hell. I don't see any reason to think I'm going anywhere. Ricky Gervais recently summed it up nicely. Atheists have nothing to die for and everything to live for. And secular moral systems are about making sure that the life we live is as good as it possibly can be.
my point has never been that purpose in life is something that we arbitrarily arrive at. My point has always been the only way there can be real purpose in life is if you were created for a purpose. My point has never been the stick of God intimidates us and threatens us. Therefore, live a life according to God's purpose. My point has simply been, if there is no God, life is ultimately meaningless. Friedrich Nietzsche, Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, all the great French atheistic existentialists and German nihilists point that out. It's logical. If your birth is an accident, if your death is an accident, the only thing that lies between those two accidents is another accident, your life. Now, you can attach all the meaning you want to it, but ultimately it's an accident. And you don't have real purpose and meaning in life if you're an accident. You're simply an accident. Jesus Christ says, no. Jesus Christ says, you're not an accident. You're a human being created by God for a purpose. So this has nothing to do with getting threatened by hell. This has nothing to do with getting threatened by God's big stick. It has, an, it has everything to do with thinking logically, thinking clearly. Acknowledge, life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, if there is no God, because your birth is an accident, your death is an accident, and it follows that the only thing that lies between those two accidents is another accident, your life. This has nothing to do with intimidation, this has nothing to do with hell, this has nothing to do with a big stick. It has to do with logical thinking, morality. If there is no God, there is no mind prior to the human mind that defines what's right and what's wrong. Do you need a mind to define what's right and what's wrong? Does anybody really think here that this wall understands the difference between right and wrong? Does anybody here really think that this floor can distinguish between right and wrong? No. You need a mind. So if there is no God, there is no mind prior to the human mind, which means who creates right and wrong? Human beings. And guess what? Matt is not right. I'm not wrong. I'm not right. Matt is not wrong if there is no God. It's all relative. You can't live your life that way. You know very well that if someone cuts you off at the knees, you say, you should not have done that. When you use the word should, you're saying, that was wrong. Don't do that again. Morality is objective. The only way morality can be objective is if there is some type of God, some type of mind prior to the human mind that defines right and wrong. What are the options in answer to the question, who defines right and wrong? First option. The powerful define it. King Arthur and his knights, they define what's right and wrong. Second option is culture defines it. Third option, the individual defines it. If one of those three are true, then morality's right and wrong. Morality's relative. And that's why Dr. Martin Luther King, seated in a prison cell in Birmingham, Alabama, writes this letter from a Birmingham prison. And in this letter he writes to people who have said to him, Dr. King, how can you break the law of the state of Alabama? Shut up, King. The great state of Alabama has declared that segregation is good. And Dr. Martin Luther King, very logically, very rationally, very kindly and lovingly, writes, There is a law above the law 
of the great state of Alabama. And according to that law, the great state of Alabama is wrong. The only way that law can exist above the law of the great state of Alabama is if there is some type of creator, some type of God, some type of mind who creates and defines a value of justice that is based on the fact that human beings are not accidents, were created in the image and likeness of God, which means segregation is objectively wrong. Not subjectively wrong, because I'm Matt from Austin, Texas, and I think that racism is wrong. It's not because we're a bunch of enlightened white people, educated at some fine university, and we have finally figured out that racism is wrong. No, racism is wrong because every single human being has intrinsic innate value. We're not accidents. We're human beings created in the image of God, and that's why if we degrade each other, that is absolutely, objectively wrong. Thank you, gentlemen. Next question, we'll start with you, Cliff. Do all religions lead to the same God? If you believe that God doesn't exist and that religion is simply creating a false God in your head, then obviously all religions are the same and they all lead to the same place, the fertilizer pit. The statistics on death are very impressive. One out of one die. And if you've just created God in your own head, and if that's all God is, a creation of the fertile human imagination, then obviously there's no truth to it. So we are born and we die and we become fertilizer. And that's the whole story. But if there is a God who actually loves you and me, if there is a God who loves us so much that he wants us to spend eternity with him in heaven, and there are not a lot of people that want to spend eternity with me. So if God really wants to spend eternity with me, Wow. So if there's a supernatural God, then it's possible for there to be life after death. But when you study Buddhism, you will notice Siddhartha Gautama Buddha never once talked about God. And Siddhartha Gautama Buddha talked about nirvana after living a life where you learn to work off your karma by following the noble path. I have a ton of respect for Siddhartha Gautama Buddha. He grew up in a very wealthy home. He turned his back on materialism, and he lived the life of a deep-thinking human being who wanted to bring an end to suffering. And the way he thought he could bring an end to suffering was to cut off human desire. And so Buddha taught people, cut off your desire. And if you cut off your desire, you will free yourself from suffering. Okay, now, I disagree with that. I don't think that I can solve the problem of suffering by just cutting off desire. I think that's moving away from reality. What Jesus Christ said is, you got to hunger and thirst after righteousness. In other words, Jesus says, you better have desires, but you better learn to distinguish between right desires and wrong desires. And so Jesus points out that when you put your faith in him, you're going to desire to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to visit those who are sick and in prison, to solve problems. Because God has given you a rational mind, he's given you a conscience, you have the ability to love and to genuinely care for people. Hinduism teaches that all of reality is one. And that the real problem with the world is, we live in this illusion of individuality. We distinguish between that object and that object, that person and that person. And so Hinduism teaches you work off your karmic debt and you become one with everything. Jesus Christ contradicted that. 
Jesus Christ taught that your individuality is a precious gift from God. And Jesus taught that in heaven you will have a new body. You will be you and I will be me. Jesus validated the importance of your personhood. That's why love is real. Because we're not machines. We're not robots. We're persons with souls, which means we can really care for each other. We can really love each other. We can choose to live in relationship with each other. We can choose to live in community with each other. And that's what God intended when he created us. Now, Islam is a fascinating religion. It takes a lot out of the Old Testament. And a devout Muslim believes more about Jesus than a typical American does. A devout Muslim believes that Jesus was born of a virgin, he ascended to heaven, and he's coming back a second time. But they also believe that Jesus is not God, and they believe, therefore, God would never have allowed such a good prophet as Jesus to die on a cross. So Judas Iscariot probably died on the cross, and Christ was whisked off to heaven. But unfortunately, Muhammad lived 500 years after Christ, so obviously Muhammad never met Jesus. The eyewitnesses, those who saw Jesus, clearly insisted that Jesus claimed to be God, that he died on a cross, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and three days after he was put in that tomb, he rose from the dead. And over a period of 40 days, he appeared to over 500 people who saw him risen from the dead. Well, you can't have it both ways, friends. Either Jesus is God in human form, as the Gospels insist he claimed, or he's just a good teacher, the way the Quran teaches. I respect Muhammad for the way one of the five pillars of Islam is to give alms to the poor. Muhammad was an orphan, a poor orphan, and he benefited from the philanthropy and the altruism of some people around him. And that's wonderful. And so he makes one of his five pillars, give alms to the poor. You see a poor person, you help him, and that's good. Bravo, Muhammad, I respect that. I think that's awesome. But when it comes to loving God and knowing him, Muhammad missed the boat. He essentially taught you can't know God. God's unknowable. He's so great. Jesus Christ said, no, God loves you. You can know him. So the question is, do all religions lead to the same God? But once again, we're talking about purpose. And there's a couple things that I want to kind of backtrack and address. One is this, is this continued objection to Without God, there's no ultimate meaning. There's no real purpose. Well, I don't know what you mean by real purpose. That seems kind of cheaty. But as far as ultimate meaning, yes, I agree. No ultimate meaning in the existential sense that you're talking about it. And it doesn't matter one bit. The car that I've got out there parked in the parking lot, I've had for a couple years. One of these days, it's going to rot away. Does that mean it's not valuable now? Does that mean it doesn't have any value to me now? Does it mean there's no purpose? Should I just go ahead and chuck it now? Let's get rid of it. Eventually, it's going to be useless. That's absurd. We all recognize that things have meaning and purpose right now because they are valuable to us. These are, things, these are properties that we imbue things with and we imbue people with. Do I matter as much to you as your spouse? Bet you I don't, unless it's you. <laughs> this idea that without the ultimate meaning, or if something is ultimately meaningless, doesn't mean it is always meaningless, or it doesn't mean it's meaningless in every way. This idea about morality, um, that it's all relative. Um, actually, I'm a staunch defender of absolute morality, and despite Cliff's straw man, uh, I'm not saying that slavery is immoral because I said so. 
It might surprise some people to know that while I don't think there's intrinsic value, I think that there is value in people, and that's the value that we imbue them with. This idea that because I said so is the, is the basis for secular morality is flatly absurd. It's the exact opposite of what I just finished talking about, about how you go through and you build up this system. We are physical beings in a physical universe that follows physical laws. There are truths to be discovered about how our actions benefit us and how our actions harm us. This is simply true. We don't need another mind. This is about the interaction of minds, but we don't need some transcendent mind to dictate what is true. We discover what is true about the reality that we inhabit. God or not, soul or not, we can choose everything on the list that Cliff just talked about, about being good to each other and building a productive society and caring and loving and trying to end poverty, trying to end oppression, and trying to build a better society. We can do all of that just because it's the right thing to do. There's no evidence for a soul. In fact, there's good evidence against it. There's no evidence or not enough evidence um, of the various God claims that are out there or not any particularly good evidence, at least that I've been made aware of. But I could be wrong. And tomorrow, I could find out that there is a God and that I do have a soul. And it wouldn't change very much for me as far as how I end up living my life because I've already come to good, good reasons to do things. I'm open to being corrected on them, but what's going to correct me is reason and evidence, not appealing to a God. And if people have asked me, well, what are you going to do if you die and you end up standing before God? Hey, I tried. I used my brain. I followed the evidence where it was. And by the way, if your character is actually accurately depicted in the Bible or the Quran, I don't want nothing to do with you. I'm already morally superior to you. I already care more about people than you do. I know. I've never sanctioned slavery, never sanctioned genocide. Gods have. Do all religions lead to the same God? I don't know. I think, I think it's unlikely. Um, I think they clearly all define God differently. I think you could go right down into the same church on the same pew and get two different people, and they're going to define God differently, and they're going to have different views of God. I think there's as many different religions as there are people trying to practice them. And my concern isn't whether or not they all lead to the same God. It's what kind of world do they end up creating? Because why should I care about an afterlife that I don't know whether or not it exists when I've got a life that I know that I have, and I'd like to make it better? And if your religion is impeding on the ability of people who don't practice your religion, or those who do, from living the best life they can right now, then your religion's a problem. That goes for Islam and Christianity and Scientology and Hinduism and everything. If you're advocating something that is detracting from the good of this world, you're part of the problem. Thank you, gentlemen. Matt, the next question will start with you. Does being an atheist require the same faith that believing in God does? No. I, I'm, seriously, it doesn't require any faith to not believe something. It doesn't. Now, if atheism was this assertion that there are no gods, ooh, I'm pissing people off. Uh, if atheism was this assertion that there are no gods, 
Well, then, yes, you might be able to make a case that that was based on faith, or maybe it's not. It would depend on what the basis, what the foundation for that particular belief was. But atheism in the weak atheism sense of I do not believe this doesn't require faith. I don't believe there's a Bigfoot. That's not a faith. It's not a faith-based position. Uh, I'm not asserting certainty that there isn't a Bigfoot. I'm just not yet convinced. The Bigfoot claim hasn't met its burden of proof. Neither of alien abductions, which, by the way, I'll point out, you can actually go talk to real living people right now who will tell you their alien abduction story. Living, breathing people, you can talk to them. They will have stories that are similar in detail. In some cases, there are multiple people who have supposedly experienced this together. In some cases, the, vis this, the things that people have seen have been entire small towns. And you can interview these people. How many people think that they're actually being abducted by aliens? Not me. And that's people you can talk to right now. Somebody writes a couple books, in a couple thousand years, somebody could stand up and say, hey, look, I wouldn't believe it, but look at all of these accounts. These are firsthand people. They were interviewed by the news. We have a much better record of what was happening at the end of the 20th and beginning of 21st century than we do about what happened back when Jesus was supposedly alive or back around the time that uh, Hinduism was being formed. This is a real record. We even have video footage of people talking about how they came down. And then they'll start tying it together in, in an intricate little web the same way conspiracy theorists do right now. Oh, there were lizard people in the government or crop circles out there. We don't believe any of that, I hope. I am at Texas State. I, I kind of respect you guys because I don't care about colleges, so we're not in any rivalry. I, you know, UT. Uh, but we don't believe that. Why should we? And yet we're expected to believe what is potentially a more extraordinary claim and weaker evidence. There's nothing particularly extraordinary about a universe that's billions, 13.7 billion years old, that there might be some other life somewhere. I don't know. Probably unlikely they made it this far. No reason for them to pick out Earth because we're not special, despite what Many creationists would have you believe they've got this wily coyote god who straps on a hat and balances on a wire and goes through all this stuff to catch a coyote. He builds this entire massive universe all for one mammalian species on this little bitty insignificant dot. Did the aliens get here? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't have any good reason to believe that they did. Doesn't mean I believe that they didn't. And yet we're expected to believe the more extraordinary claims of religion, unless less sound evidence. We're expected to believe miracles, things that suspend or violate the laws of nature. There's nothing about alien abductions that necessarily violates the laws of nature. Is there? I mean, it's at least slightly more reasonable, and yet we don't believe it. With people you can talk to. And yet we're going to point to anonymous books that are hearsay accounts, copies of copies of translations of copies by unknown and anonymous authors, wherein we know there are forgeries. Anybody seen Snake Salvation on TV? It's on National Geographic. It's about the snake handling Pentecostals, and they rely on Mark 16, somewhere in the 9 through 20 section, I think it's around verse 18, where they shall take up serpents. Mark 16, 9 through 20 is almost certainly a forgery. It doesn't exist in the oldest and best manuscripts, yet they believe it. Maybe it should be there. Maybe they're the ones that are right. I like snakes. I've got pet snakes. I'm not going to handle them. 
And I'm certainly, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going to handle mine. I'm not going to handle venomous snakes uh, for fun. And certainly not as an exercise of faith. Because there's not really good evidence that it's actually um, something that we should encourage. Because those guys get bit and die all the time. And my, my pastor friends who don't adhere to that particular doctrine look at them and say, hey, dummy, God gave you a brain and doctors. You know, go. There's not agreement on these issues about God's. We don't have good evidence for these things. What we have are fallacies and tired old arguments that have been rebutted over and over again. If there is a God, he knows exactly what it would take to convince me. He hasn't done it, which means he either doesn't exist or he doesn't want me to know he exists. Does being an atheist require the same faith that believing in God does? No, an atheist has a type of faith that says, I'm going to live for someone or something other than God. And the fascinating question that I love to ask my atheist friends is, what do you live for and what is the evidence that whatever it is you live for is true? Now, the majority of my atheist friends living in the United States live for money. And it makes sense. Money can benefit you a great deal. Nothing wrong with money. But is the ultimate purpose of life to live for money? So my secular materialist friends are very talented. The majority of them work on Wall Street. And the majority of my secular materialist friends live for the American dollar. I think we live in a culture that puts a premium on that. I'm not saying that Matt does. I'm just saying the majority of my atheist friends, who are very wonderful people, live for money. Others of them live for pleasure. They've reduced the purpose of life to stimulating my nerve endings. I understand that. I enjoy pleasure. I'm convinced that pleasure is a gift from God. The central nervous system that I have that gives me pleasure is good. The taste buds on my tongue that enable me to enjoy food is good. But to reduce the purpose of life to stimulating my nerve endings, I mean, come on. Now, what I find interesting is Matt consistently says, well, there's not enough evidence. Fine. What I would love to hear from Matt is, what am I living for, and what's the evidence that what I am living for is true? See, friends, all of us are going to put our heads on our pillows tonight. None of us can prove that what we're living for is true. The question, though, is, what's the evidence that whatever it is you're living for is reliable and true? And there are a lot of different options out there. Now, Matt likes to talk a lot about the Bible, so let's talk about the Bible. The Gospels that we have in English today are based on over 5,200 Greek manuscripts or pieces of manuscript dated from the 2nd through the 10th century AD, all agreeing to an infinitesimal degree. There is no document from antiquity that can even approach the New Testament Gospels in manuscript evidence. Secondly, you have four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're not carbon copies. Obviously, they use notes. There are similarities in language between especially the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But there's a tremendous internal consistency between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are no major contradictions. There are different perspectives. The same way that if you and I were standing on a street corner and we saw two cars coming down the street and we heard a woman scream, there was a screech of brakes, and then there was a collision. 
If you and I went to the police department and you said, officer, I saw the two cars coming down the street, I heard a woman scream and then there was a collision, and if I were to say, officer, I saw the two cars coming down the street, I heard a screech of brakes and then there was a collision, we're not contradicting each other. We're offering two equally valid perspectives on what really happened. And that's what you've got in the Gospels. I'm real glad they're not Xerox copies. They're not photocopies. They're unique perspectives on Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what I find astonishing is that Matt says he went to seminary. No, I didn't. All right. You were going into the ministry? I was going to. I didn't go. Yeah, you were going to go into the ministry. Okay? Which means you probably read the Bible. And then when you wheel off a statement that the Bible doesn't say anything against slavery, that's embarrassing. Let me tell you why it's embarrassing. The main point of the book of Philemon in the New Testament is Paul is writing to a slave owner, Philemon, and he is saying, I met your runaway slave, Onesimus. Now in the Roman Empire, the rule, the law is that you are permitted to execute the guy. He's a runaway slave. But I, Paul, am asking you, Philemon, to take Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. Who do you think fought and finally won for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire? A man named William Wilberforce, who served in the British Parliament, and it was due to his faith in Christ that he struggled against slavery in the entire British Empire until he won just before he died. Why did William Wilberforce fight for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire because he was a devoted follower of Christ and he understood that all human beings are created in the image of God. Therefore, to stand against slavery and to stand for the value and dignity of all of human life is not an option. So I can promise you folks, you got to read the text for yourself. Because if a man as intelligent as he can say, the Bible never says anything against slavery, you got to read it for yourself. Read Philemon in the New Testament. Thank you, gentlemen. Cliff, the next question will start with you. Why would a loving God allow so much suffering? I do not know why God allowed evil and suffering. For thousands of years, philosophers and theologians have struggled with that question. They've never come up with an ultimate answer. And I am not going to be able to ultimately answer you. I do not know. But as a follower of Christ, I have to think. First point. Genesis chapter 1 records that when God created this, God saw that it was good. When God created that, God saw that it was good. So God did not create evil, suffering, and death. But in Genesis chapter 3, we read how human beings rebel against God. And when we told God to step off, to get lost, to remove his act elsewhere, he partially honored our request. And when God stepped back, chaos, destruction, and death entered the world. So you and I were not born into a fair world. You and I are born into an unfair world, not because God created it that way, but because the all-powerful God chose to partially limit his power by creating me free. If I haul back and slap this man and turn to you and say, God made me do it, I'm a con artist. I'm a liar. God gave me a hand for the purpose of loving and respecting this man. But because I have a free will, I can roll this hand into a fist and send it crashing into his handsome face. If I have the audacity to say God made me do it. I'm a liar. I have a free will. 
And you and I live in a world where there's a tremendous amount of suffering, evil, and death that's a direct result of human irresponsibility. But remember, when we human beings rebel against God, God steps back and evil, chaos, suffering, and death enter the experience of humankind. Now, why? Why did God choose to create us with free will? Ultimately, I do not know. Well, come on, Cliff. It would be better if we didn't have free will. Then we wouldn't have evil and all this suffering and death. Yeah. We also wouldn't have love. Because in order to be real, love has to be free. If it ain't free, it ain't love. If he's been dating somebody for the past two months, and she has said to him, I love you, and tonight his dad calls him up and says, son, I've been paying her 1,000 bucks a month to date you. He'd be royally bummed out. Why? Because you cannot manipulate or force love. And God created us to live in a love relationship with himself. You cannot force love. Oh, but God's all-powerful. He can do anything he wants. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. God cannot make square circles. God cannot make 2 plus 2 equal 5. And God cannot make himself exist and not exist at the same time in the same way. Impossible. When the Bible says that God is all-powerful, it means he's all-powerful over his creation. But obviously what he's chosen to do is he's chosen to limit his power and give us free will. And that's why you love. And that's why you enjoy so much when other people love you. Because you know they don't have to love you. You know that they freely choose to love you. Now, Jesus Christ commands us to feed the hungry, to alleviate suffering. And I have younger brothers and sisters, some of whom are medical doctors, some of whom are lawyers, some of whom are teachers. And because of their faith in Christ, they put it on the line. And they serve in Nepal, in India. My brother who's a medical doctor. Motivated by his faith in Christ, they serve and they love people to make a practical difference. And so as a follower of Christ, I have no option but to give to those who are hurting. I have no option but to care for the needy. Because the God who created me gave me talents like a rational mind. And he holds me responsible to use those talents in order to serve others. And I don't serve others because of fear of a big stick. Instead, I serve others because I understand the truth that every single human being on the face of the planet has dignity and value because they're not accidents, they're human beings created in the image of God. And ultimately, because God is a suffering God, he has provided the solution for suffering and death. Forgiveness and eternal life in heaven, well, there will be no more HIV positive, no more heart failure, no more cancer, but eternal life in the presence of God. Now, my atheist friend, let's go to the hospital. Come on, my atheist friend, let's go to the room where the baby lies, whose body is being shredded by terminal cancer. Come, my atheist friend, what is your solution? Tough luck, kid. Your mama didn't read her horoscope. It's fate, destiny, chance. That is the despair of atheism. I, as a follower of Christ, walk the other side of the bed, and along with my atheist friend, I will hold the child's other hand. But in Jesus Christ, I have a suffering God who died on a cross, rose from the dead, to give the ultimate solution for suffering, eternal life in heaven.
All right, I'll lose a couple of seconds. There's a lot to get to. I'll start off with the end and then go back to the beginning. Um, as your potential atheist friend who is sitting there looking at a child that's suffering and dying, my answer would be more education, more science, and more medicine, and not one single second spent in prayer. That would be my answer. But when the, the question that you most wanted me to ask is, what are you living for, and what is the evidence that what you're living for is true? Well, I live for a lot of things, and I could give you a list, but there's not enough time. Because the second part of your question, what is the evidence that what you're living for is true, doesn't make any sense. I tried to explain this repeatedly last year. Um, it, it is presuming, what you're really asking is, what is the evidence that you have the correct purpose? And that, that assumes the very thing that you're claiming is that there is a correct purpose. That there is some externally imposed, approved by God purpose, which I reject and have rejected over and over again. So I can't give you evidence that what my purpose is is true because that's a question that doesn't make any sense. It's like, what's your favorite ice cream color or flavor? And how do you know that's true? I know it's true that it is. I don't know that it's true that that's the ice cream flavor I'm supposed to like the best. The problem of suffering or or egregious suffering is never one that really bothered me too much when I was a believer. I mean, you know, I had the same questions that everybody else does. Um, and I don't actually find it an argument that I actually engage with very often as an atheist. Um, but going back to the Bible for a second, um, there's this appeal to internal consistency in the Gospels, which I don't really find particularly convincing because there's a long tradition of people diligently copying those things down. And, of course, they're going to keep the things that are pretty consistent. However, there still are inconsistencies. You can go and try and reconcile the, Easter, the resurrection accounts, um, and they don't quite match up in any way. People have been trying to do this forever. It's not easy. It doesn't prove they're false. But even if they were completely consistent, that still doesn't tell us whether or not they're true. I can go through the first 100 episodes of The, the, the Amazing Spider-Man, and they are internally consistent without any sort of contradictions. But the, and we can go and we can see Manhattan, but that doesn't mean that there was a Spider-Man. Internal consistency is irrelevant. There needs to be evidence for the claims in there, not just a whole bunch of claims that are consistent. As to slavery, sorry, Cliff's wrong. Philemon is not declaring slavery to be immoral or wrong in any way. It's a letter to an individual about a specific slave and how he wants that slave treated. Exodus 21 advocates slavery includes how you can screw over your fellow Jew, who you were supposed to let go after six years, to serve you forever by giving them a wife and kid and having them come and say, hey, I got a wife and kid now. I don't want to leave them. I will be yours forever. Leviticus extends these. Deuteronomy declares that, that slaves are your property that you can pass on to your descendants. Did Jesus clear this up in Bible 2.0? Did Jesus come up and say, you know, that stuff that you heard that, that we said back, you know, me and God, that was wrong? And here's the correction, no. Slaves, servants, obey your masters. Especially the cruel ones. You know what the only humane thing to say to a slave is? Get out and take everybody with you. And if they're cruel, hit them on the way out. That's it. Make your way free. Philemon is not a book tearing down slavery. And Wilberforce, while he was a follower of Christ, and there were plenty of followers of Christ who contributed in the abolition of slavery across the world. They were pointing to some of the same verses that the slave owners were pointing to. Which one was on firmer biblical footing? I love 
I have a lot of Christian pastors who are friends, and they're in liberal and moderate Christian churches. They support LGBT rights and all sorts of things, and I love them. They're great. They don't have the biblical foundation that Westboro Baptist Church does with their hatred, which I despised even when I was a Christian, and so did my parents. And I don't think that they have a good foundation for how they go about it. But their positions are more biblically sound than the gay church in San Francisco that wants to love Jesus with all their heart. The Bible doesn't say what you think it says. And like Cliff, I'll encourage you to read it. I've read it many times and taught it. And our final prepared question will start with you, Matt. What do you believe in regards to the beginning of the universe? Well, that's an easy one. I'm going to cheat a little bit and give you 30 seconds on love. Um, I'm not convinced that we choose who to love. I don't know for sure. Not making a declaration, but love seems to be something that happens to me. And then I make choices about what I'm going to do with that. And, you, and Cliff said you can't force love, which should also mean that you can't choose love. You choose what you do with the love that kind of happens to you. I think, I think it kind of happens. But what do I believe about the origins of the universe? I don't know. I tell you what I understand. I'm not a physicist. I'm not a cosmologist. Um, I have friends who are. And they have tried. Lawrence Krauss sat with me for probably an hour in a, a taxi trying to clear up some misunderstandings that I had. I have a physicist friend in Austin um, who used to have the office next to Weinberg there um, who wrote textbook that they use there on quantum mechanics. He's very interested in cosmology. He's actually currently reviewing a model that is set to compete with the Big Bang cosmology. Now, what do I believe? I believe that the Big Bang model is the best current explanation that fits the evidence. That's exactly what science does. It attempts to explain what we see. I believe that I can have confidence, not faith, because I have evidence that the scientific community have demonstrated an expertise here and that the process of hypothesis, testing, modeling, making predictions, submitting it for peer review and falsification leads most consistently to the best possible results. If you want to know how something in reality works, that's the most reliable method. Nothing has ever disproved science but more science. There's no religious book that has disproved science. There's no religious insight that has ever come from religion that was of any use at all until it had been confirmed by science. Now, am I advocating scientism? Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know what the origin of the universe is. I'm, I'm not sufficiently conversant in the subjects. But I know what the best current model is, and I know that if it changes, it'll be based on evidence and reason. Um, I don't have a good answer, or do I? See, sometimes I don't know is the best answer. I don't know is the answer that lets you go out and find the actual explanation. Rather than pretending that I have come by the one and only possible explanation, which was coincidentally recorded in the holy book that I happen to believe in and seems to fit my own preconceptions, I can't think of a better explanation than God done it. Fallacy. Well, you can't prove that God didn't do it, so God did it. Fallacy. Look at the Kalam cosmological argument, which he raised earlier. 
Everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. You know why that first, that first um, premise has that everything that begins to exist? Because the old one just said everything has a cause, and that screwed them over when it came to God. So they modified it and amended it. That's what they do with all these arguments for the existence of God. Now it's everything that begins to exist has a cause for its existence. Is that true? It's an inference. Don't know that we've come across anything that began to exist and didn't have a cause, but we might have. All kinds of weirdness in quantum mechanics. There's, there's experiments that have been done with electrons where the direction that they, they come out after being put through this thing, which I'm not even going to attempt to explain because I'm an idiot when it comes to physics. We know it's 50-50. Absolutely no way to predict which way any individual electron's spin is going to be. It seems to be, in effect, without a cause. And I have some physicist friends who are actually lobbying that there are many such causeless effects. So I don't know that the first premise is true. After you get past everything that begins to exist, has a cause for its existence, there is the universe began to exist. Did it? What do you mean by that? Certainly the local representation of the universe that we witness can be traced back to just before the Big Bang event, which has been, at least been confirmed by observation of cosmic microwave background radiation. But we can't go past the Planck time. And as far as we know, time started with the Big Bang, so before the Big Bang is absurd, which means there couldn't have been a cause before because causality is necessarily temporal. So if there's no time, then there's no time to do anything. So maybe there was an uncaused event. I don't know. All I do know is I don't see any good reason to think there was a God that magicked the universe into existence. I don't understand why it would need to do that. I don't understand the exorbitant fashion in which it did all this. It just it doesn't make sense. But moreover, there isn't any evidence for it. The Bible never answers the question, how old is the planet, how old is the universe? So from the Bible, I do not know how old the universe is. That's why I turn to science. And science at this point shows that the, Earth, the universe is about 15 billion years old, 13.7 billion years old. And that's why I accept the universe as being about 13.7 billion years old. The Bible says, in the beginning, God, not in the beginning, hydrogen. Why is that important? That's important because in all of my observation, you never get order and design by chance as a result of an accident. So if science points to evolution as being the most reasonable, the best supported theory of how we came about, I have no problem with that. What I do have a problem with is the philosophy of evolution as an origin which states behind this amazing order and design, there's no intelligent mind, there's just chance and fate. I'm sorry. Every example of order and design, separate from nature, because we're obviously debating the issue of nature, but every example of order and design that I see demands a designer. A shirt demands a tailor. If I prepare a delicious meal, set it before you and say, there's no cook. This just happened. That's absurd. If you and I are walking through the Black Hills of South Dakota, we come around a corner and all of a sudden, wow, we look up and there are the heads of four presidents on that Mount Rushmore. And if I say to you, wow, isn't it amazing the way the glass just sort of trickled over the rock? Wow, there's George Washington. There's Thomas Jefferson. 
And here's old Rough Rider Teddy Roosevelt. Isn't it amazing the way that the water just carved out those heads on Mount Rushmore? That's unreasonable. Why? Because the order and the design of those four presidents' heads on Mount Rushmore demands a sculpture, demands someone who has forethought, intention, and understands how to bring order out of chaos. So if that's true of everything that I observe in life, then when it comes to the issue that we're debating, which is the universe, nature, the human eye, the central nervous system, it is far more reasonable, it is far more plausible for me to believe that behind the order and the design of the universe is an intelligent mind than it is for me to believe that it's all just chance and fate. And that is one of the main reasons, to tell you the truth, that I overcome my doubts when I doubt God's existence. Because order and design repeatedly, 100 times out of 100, points to an intelligent mind. Now, I love speaking at Texas State. I also love speaking at the University of Texas up in Austin. And there's a wonderful philosophy professor there named Rob Kunz. He's a philosophy professor at UT Austin. And so I invite Rob to come out and communicate his faith to the students. And Dr. Rob Kunz, the philosophy department at UT, stands up and says, one of the reasons that I'm most grateful for my faith in Jesus Christ is I do not have to struggle through epistemological nihilism the way my fellow philosophy professors do here. Epistemological nihilism is basically an understanding that if there is no God, you can't know anything ultimately with certainty. Why? Because what is your mind? Your mind is an accidental collection of atoms. What is your mind? Well, as Charles Darwin wrote to a man named Mr. Graham in a letter, your mind is simply a highly developed monkey's mind. Would you trust the thoughts of a monkey, Darwin asked. See, that's what I say is intellectually consistent. If I believe that my mind has no intelligent mind behind it, but is simply the result of chance and fate, then why do I trust my mind to tell me that it's just the result of chance and fate? I was speaking at Columbia University in New York City, and a bunch of freshmen came out of humanities class, and they said, Cliff, how do you know that your mind was not put together by a bunch of very intelligent scientists in a vat this morning? I thought that they were playing games with me. They weren't. Their Columbia University professor was encouraging them to think through the logical implications of there not being a God. If there is no God, your mind is simply a chemical accident. Why do you trust the chemical accident? The reason I trust my mind is because I'm convinced it's not an accident. It's a gift from a rational creator. Thank you, gentlemen. Now we'll begin taking some questions that have been texted in from our students. And since we're running a little bit behind time, let me request we limit our comments to four minutes, if we can do that. That might throw off our timer over there, but we'll make do. First question comes from a student out of Houston. And we'll go ahead and start with you, Cliff. Why does it seem as if people project their personal preferences preferences onto God or the lack of, and do you both feel that you're doing this, how do you reconcile that? 
one of the reasons, and some people don't appreciate it, that I stick so much to evidence in answering the question, why do I believe God exists? Why do I believe that Jesus is the truth? It's because my challenge as a thinking human being, and I think your challenge as a thinking human being, is to be objective. Follow the evidence wherever it leads. And if the way you live your life points to the fact that you hunger for meaning in life, you know the value of love, you long for life after death, you know that there are some objective morals, like the abuse of an innocent child is never good. In other words, morality is not all relative. Partially relative, yes, but all relative, no. There are objective morals which demands an intelligent mind behind the universe. If that's what you experience life as, then follow the evidence. And the evidence points straight to the existence of God. Now, I grew up in New England. I didn't grow up in Texas. And in New England, it's not popular to believe in God. And I went to a New England prep school. And in that New England prep school, there was one other believer in Christ. So I had to think through my faith hard. And there were a lot of questions that I couldn't answer, and there still are a lot of questions I can't answer. But I can promise you, if you study the evidence of your life, if you observe reality around you, the evidence is God exists. And if you look hard at Jesus Christ, the evidence is he spoke the truth. In fact, if you listen to Matt carefully, Matt agrees with Jesus when it comes to ethics, doesn't he? In fact, almost all of my atheist friends agree with Jesus in the majority of ethical issues. In fact, when you study anthropology around the world, every culture, it's like we're all reading off the same sheet music. Because there's an amazing agreement regarding adultery, regarding stealing, regarding murder. We human beings have been hardwired by God with a conscience, and we understand good. But what is so ironic and so paradoxical is that Matt keeps on referring to, I just decide because I've got an intellect what's right and what's wrong. Well, guess what? The most brilliant nation of the world in the 20th century committed Dachau, Auschwitz, and Buchenwald. It is not enough to have a brilliant mind. The question is, what are you going to do with that mind? Are you going to gas Jews because you think they're a lower level of the evolutionary cycle? Or are you going to stand for justice, for compassion, for the value and dignity of all of human life? And if so, why? You see, friends, the evidence is that God exists. The evidence is Jesus Christ is reliable. And that is why Africans, Asians, people in South America, far more than the West, have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Because the overwhelming evidence is he loves you. He sacrificed his life for you. He wants you to live with him now. He's not violating your conscience he agrees with your conscience. He calls you to live a life of selflessness. He calls you to live a life rooted in his love, in his grace, in his truth, and then to give your life away in serving others. And that's why you get an education, so that you can serve people more effectively. And an education is good because it's using the rational mind that God gave you to do that which is best.
Can we get another water uh, when we get time? You want water? Uh, you you, you, you might end here. up needing yours. No, He's I don't need one. it. Go ahead, man. It's okay. Oh, uh, so you can't do that. That's cheating. How is it cheating? <laughs> How's it cheating, man? <sighs> Got a 20? Got a 20? No, yeah, you want a 20? No, I don't. <laughs> you want a 20? No. It's right here, bud. You no. asked for it. No, see, it's cheating. There's a 20. No, no, no. I'll donate this to the church then uh, that put this together. Good. Not West Barrow Baptist, okay? Sure, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear right. that atheists are now a majority in New England, because uh, evidently it's not popular to believe in God in New England, although I, I, I thought they were still over at least 50% theists in, in uh, New England. Um, and yeah, it's interesting, uh, the question was about, you know, do people kind of superimpose their own ideas onto God? And yes, in fact, we've done testing, and we know this is the case, because there are different portions of the brain that are about, I think this, and someone else thinks this, and curiously, when asked what God thinks, the part that lights up for I think this is the part that lights up, lights up, not the part for someone else thinks this. But, unfortunately, as much as I'd like to just be nice to Cliff, if you imply that Hitler was an atheist who gassed Jews because they're lower on the evolutionary ladder, you have just committed a despicable act because Hitler professed to be, in public and private, atheist, a Christian, supported by the Catholic Church. The Nazis ran around with Gottmann-Unz on their belt buckles, which is God with us, and evolution was banned in Germany. The teaching of evolution was banned. You don't get to lay this at the feet of science, and you don't get to claim that a monster, just because he doesn't happen to believe in God the same way you did, was anything at all like an atheist or a secular humanist or anything along those lines. It's just flatly false. Cliff and I completely agree, follow the evidence wherever it leads. And yet, curiously, no sooner had he said follow the evidence where it leads, what did he say? And if you find yourself hungering for an afterlife, that's not following the evidence, that's following your desires. If you find evidence for an afterlife, by all means. But if you find yourself hungering for an afterlife, maybe what you're hungering for isn't real. Where's the evidence for it? I followed the evidence where it led. Turned out, my desire to fulfill 1 Peter 3.15 and be the best representative of Christ I could be clearly led me to here. It's all part of God's plan, right? We, we know that people project their own thoughts onto what they think God thinks. What Cliff would probably have us believe, and eh, this is unfair, I don't want to put words in his mouth, what many theists would have us believe is that they're not doing that. Other people are, they're not. Not the true Christians. They don't do that. How do you know? How do you prove this? Well, by, your, by their fruits you'll know them. Okay. I, oh, look, Matt even agrees with Jesus. I agree with Jesus when he was right. You want to find out the truth, go to ironchariots.org. I've got an entire verse-by-verse -verse deconstruction of the Sermon on the Mount because I got tired of even some atheists saying, oh, this is the greatest and most wise thing anybody's ever said. No, it's not. There's some good advice in there. There's some bad advice in there. And there's some horrible advice in there. There's stuff in there that turns people into victims, and it is polluting conversations. Because there are some people who... I imagine people would point to and say, oh, they're not true Christians, but they are completely, excuse my language, assholes about their faith, and when somebody calls them out on it, 
Oh, you'll probably be persecuted in His name, so clearly I must be doing it right because you're persecuting me. No, maybe you're just an ass. <laughs> maybe. And maybe you're not. How do we know? Follow the evidence. What's the evidence tell us about this? I have yet to find any evidence that's convincing. And these are, these are not, not trivial claims. That somebody was a god, lived, died, rose from the dead, saved the world. Throw people out of a temple. I mean, that, that might be a trivial thing. We need evidence. Follow it. Read, study. I didn't get here by accident, no matter how Cliff wants to straw man my comments. Next questions coming to us from Austin, Texas. So, Matt, we'll start with you. What do you both think or believe will happen after you die? I imagine my wife will get married to somebody else. And, no, actually, uh, she's, she's going to run off with a friend of hers and have a whole bunch of cats. Oh, you mean what's going to happen to me? I don't know. I don't see any reason to think that anything's going to happen to me. Uh, everything that makes me me, everything that we uh, have historically and religiously attributed to a soul that can be identified with a place is, has a place in the brain. My personality is in my brain. We know from experiments on people who have suffered all sorts of brain damage that you can reset people's personality, their preference, their memories, their ability to make new memories. Uh, I'm going to get the, the name wrong. Vishwanathan, I know. Somebody will know. Anyway, did a talk, uh, a talk at one of the religion summits about a split brain patient, hemispherectomy. They can communicate with both halves, and each half has a separate personality and a separate identity and communicates independently. One half, Christian. The other half, atheist. Now, I guess you could argue that when we split that brain in half, there was only enough soul for one side, and the other side uh, just got, you know, shafted. But everything we know about what makes us us, our likes, our preferences, our desires, they're all, all a product of the brain. Now, a lot of theists would say that that there's a soul behind it all, as a puppet master, the ghost in the machine. And yet there's no evidence to support this. And it, and it doesn't make sense in the model. If I suffer severe brain damage and all of a sudden I don't remember the past, I don't remember that I love my wife, I don't like the same foods, I don't want to interact with the same people, and now all of a sudden I believe in God, am I the same person? I don't think so. Haven't we really kind of ended up with a whole new person? I have an argument that, that I use partially as a joke. It's an argument that demonstrates, according to some traditions, nobody's in heaven, and it's really easy. In heaven, there's no suffering and no sadness, according to some traditions. My mom is convinced she's going to heaven, and she's convinced I'm going to hell. Now, I don't know who's going to end up in heaven, but it won't be my mom. There's no way my mom could be up in heaven, not suffering and not sad that her son is in hell. And if God does some kind of magic to take that out of her, it's not my mom anymore. It's a facsimile of my mom. Some kind of robotic worshiping thing that's not my mom. My mom and I disagree vehemently on religious stuff, so much so that we don't talk about it anymore because we love each other and we'd like to have a, a civil you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever religious holiday drives me up there to, to visit and hang out. By the way, we celebrate Christmas. Have a big white tree with uh, peppermints and stuff on it. It's awesome. Entirely secular stuff. We're stealing it back because Christianity stole most of those things from 
from other religions. But, and Easter too, but I'm not that big on eggs and candy because I'm diabetic. But everything that we know about us takes place in our brain. The brain gets damaged. Are you the same person? I don't know. The math on souls is confusing. Sam Harris has talked about the math on souls for people who believe that zygotes get a soul because the embryo will sometimes split and then re-get together. So when it splits, does it have two souls? And then when it comes back together, does it just have one? Or now do we have a body with two souls? Or do we not put a soul in until afterwards? Or does it happen when he breathes the first breath, as the Jews believed? Doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. The math on souls doesn't make sense. The science on souls doesn't make any sense. There's no reason to think that there's some kind of ghost dictating what goes on in my brain. We haven't even gotten into free will. Cliff keeps asserting that we have it. I'm not convinced we do, at least not in the sense that he's talking about. I don't know what's going to happen to me when I'm dead. I'm pretty sure my body's going to rot, my brain's going to stop working, and I will cease to exist. And it didn't bother me before I was alive, so I don't see why it bothered me afterwards. Guys, we've got to be honest with each other. If there is no God, we know exactly what happens when we die. If there is no God, there's no life after death. If there is no God, you are matter and energy. And when you die, the matter and energy fall apart. So let's not act like maybe there's life after death. No, that's illogical. If there is no God, when you die, when I die, we become fertilizer. Very logical. Very reasonable. But you know what the problem is? The problem is that I've got to do funerals for families that are atheist or agnostic. And inevitably what happens to me is I'm standing there and they're coming up to me saying, well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the great spirit, excuse me, great spirit, what are you talking about? If there is no God, there's no spirit. There's matter and energy. And when we die, the matter and energy falls apart. Now, don't get scared. Just face reality. Be objective. And don't allow your fears to get you knocking your knees, saying, oh, well, maybe. Oh, well, possibly. No. Be rational. Use your good mind. If there is no God, when you die, you rot. When I die, I rot. End of story. Just think about it. Now, there's an alternative to that. And the alternative is that if there's a supernatural God, then possibly there is life after death. And I can promise you, I would never believe there's life after death because I'm scared to die. That's being a wimp. That's being a coward. Instead, you'd better use your brain, and you better start thinking, and you better figure out, does the evidence point to there being something more to reality than matter and energy, there being some type of God, or does there not? And then secondly, you better use your brain, and you better think real clearly. Does the historical evidence point to Jesus having died and risen from the dead, or not? And I can promise you, if you believe there's life after death because you're scared to die, you're an intellectual wimp. And I would never believe there's life after death because I find it attractive. And Matt is wrong. I don't believe there's life after death because I've got this deep longing for life after death. But I'll tell you exactly what I do. If I find that I have a deep longing for something, 
I look at the evidence to find out is there any truth to it or not. And if there's no truth to it, I drop it. But if there is evidence to support it, I would be very wise to follow that evidence. Now, why do I believe there's life after death? First of all, because the evidence is there is a supernatural God. And second of all, because the historical evidence is that Jesus was dead, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And the people who saw him risen from the dead died, for not for belief. They died for what they claimed to have seen, the dead Christ risen from the dead. If you claim to have seen something like Matthew, Mark, John, Thomas, Philip, Andrew, Peter, if you claim to have seen the dead Christ risen from the dead, and then you stand before Roman soldiers, and the Roman soldiers say, Caesar is Lord and live, or else maintain that your Jesus is risen from the dead, and we will execute you for it. And if you stand there and say, I'm sorry, I've seen Jesus risen from the dead, that gives your claim tremendous credibility. So the evidence is Jesus rose from the dead. That's why I'm convinced when he promises you eternal life, if you trust in him, he ain't blowing smoke. He's speaking the truth. We've had a good number of questions being texted in. Obviously, we can't cover a ton of those tonight. So in order to allow time for your closing comments, we'll make this our last question from students. This comes from Waco, Texas. How do you both explain love? Is it a real thing? Who goes first? We'll go back with you, Cliff. Me? All right. If there is no God, you have reduced reality to matter and energy, which means the student at Duke University was absolutely right when he said to me, Cliff, there is no God. And I asked, fine, then what motivates Mother Teresa to do what she's doing among the dying in Calcutta, India? And he was spot on when he said, the drive to preserve the genetic pool. That's what motivates Mother Teresa. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't agree. I don't think that Mother Teresa has to work among the dying in Calcutta, India. I think that she freely chooses to. I think that she freely chooses to love people who are dying ghastly deaths. And that ability to choose to love is part of what it means to be a human being. And every atheist, every agnostic, every human being has the ability to love. All of my atheist friends love. Very deeply they love. But what is love? Love is not simply a biochemical reaction, a sex drive, or a drive to preserve the genetic pool. Love is a decision of the will to care for someone else. Now, I think Matt's definition of love, it's, it's something that just comes to you, is straight out of Hollywood. In other words, love in America, for too many of us, is something you fall into and fall out of. It's a feeling that just sort of overwhelms you. Jesus said, love your enemy. I never have good feelings for my enemy. So is Jesus being unrealistic when he commands us to love our enemies? No. Because when you read the New Testament and the Old Testament, what you begin to realize is love is not a feeling that you either fall into or out of. Rather, love is a decision of the will to pray for and to work for the well-being and the success of another human being, even if that person is your enemy. So 
You and I are created to love. We all have a free will, and we all choose whether to love or to seek revenge. We all choose whether to love or to be apathetic. We all choose whether we love or hate. And I can promise you, if you put your faith in Christ, all that he wants to do is help you to love others better. And that has been my experience. I went to Davidson College down in North Carolina to play basketball. The only problem was I wasn't good enough to play D1 basketball. So I barely made the team, and I had good seats for every game. And there was an assistant coach who would stand on the sidelines during basketball practice, and he would mock me. And my teammates would come up to me and say, hey, man, what have you done against this guy? Did he treat you like a piece of dirt? And I'd say, I don't know. But inside me, I felt a hatred and a resentment towards this man because he stood between me and what I wanted to do most in life at that time, play against NC State and Notre Dame and St. John's and Chapel Hill and UCLA. And I resented the guy's presence on planet Earth, to put it honestly. But I reached the point in my life where I said, God, I've tried to love the man and I can't stand him. Would you please help me? And I experienced a power outside of myself to love a basketball coach who I on my own hated. That's what Jesus wants to do in our lives. He wants to give us the power from within to change and to love even our enemy, even the person who cuts us off at the knees. He wants to give us the power to forgive. And to forgive is difficult because when someone hurts me badly enough, what's going off in my head is rocky, 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 blast him into the next generation. And Jesus says, no, forgive, absorb the hit, forgive. And I find that to be really living. So on a couple of occasions, we heard if there is no God, then there's only matter and energy, which I'll just point out is not actually true. Um, whether or not there's a God is one question, and whether or not there's something else is another. And Cliff wants to say, if there's no God, then there's just matter and energy. I think Buddhists would disagree with them. They don't believe in a God, and yet they believe in all sorts of, some of them, supernatural things like karma and reincarnation and things like that. Cliff's, Cliff's model, his head is the only one he can see. When it comes to love, he brought up the example of Mother Teresa. If you're Catholic, I'm probably going to piss you off, but if you haven't read Christopher Hitchens' missionary position, you probably should. His mother, Teresa, was not an agent of love. She was in love with suffering. and She felt that suffering brought people closer to God. So she brought in millions in donations and left people laying on squalid floors, suffering and dying because it was God's will. She was not some agent of change. She did not provide uh, the medical treatments in many cases that would have been necessary, that would have been a real demonstration of loving someone and caring about them. She loved her idea of God, which included suffering as a primary demonstration of what God wanted out of these people's lives. Now, I'm not advocating really a Hollywood love. I was just, when I said, you know, love's kind of something that happens, I was talking about how you fall in love and meet somebody. I don't remember making any sort of conscious choice. Um, maybe I did. Uh, the demonstration of will is what I do with love. What is love? How do I explain love? Well, yeah, it's something that happens in the brain chemical signals, blah, 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 blah. We can distill that down until it seems to some 
be just really kind of sterile and clinical. How is it any less wonderful? If you discover that the experience that you've had of being in love does not actually come from an external source, it's, you still had that feeling. It's the same. It's true. The experience isn't diminished, and I would argue that this constant appeal to gods as external sources for things like love diminish them. People look at flowers. Flowers are beautiful. I love flowers. Not as much as some people, but I love flowers. Is a flower more beautiful because God made it? Of course not. The fact that there is some all-powerful God means that he could have created a flower that when you looked at it, sent you over the edge in a euphoric bliss and immediately into orgasm that surpassed everything everywhere. But the flower is still beautiful, even though it doesn't do that. And love, whether you think it comes from God or whether you think that it's just what happens in your brain, still the same. There's no demonstration that there's a God required for this. Just like when I eat certain things and enjoy them, or when I hear certain music, one of the things that helped me figure out all those times in the past where I was convinced, like everybody around me, that I had experienced the Holy Spirit right then and there, was coming to the understanding that I could have that same or similar euphoric experience from secular music, from beauty, from art, from Mount Rushmore. Which, by the way, the reason we recognize Mount Rushmore is, not design, is designed is because we have mountains of evidence for it and no mechanism by which mountains spontaneously generate faces, which is not the same as life. We recognize design not by complexity, but by contrasting it with that which is naturally occurring. And life is naturally occurring. There's a mechanism for replication there. And saying walking along and finding the one thing that looks different is absurd if you believe in a god because with Paley's watchmaker thing, if you walk along and find a watch and it was clearly designed, wrong. Because in God, in the God-believing universe, you're walking along, around on a universe full of watches through a pasture of watches and picking up one watch and saying, this one's special. That's the same thing he's doing with love. It's good. During the 60s, there was a riot at the Sorbonne, the French University in Paris. And this one bearded man was rioting. The young man walked up to the bearded man and said, uh, what are you rioting about? The bearded man said, I'm protesting this lousy world. The young man asked him, do you believe in God? The man said, no, I'm an atheist. The young man asked him, do you love anybody? The bearded man lowered his head and said, yes, I love a woman by whom I've had a child and she's dying of leukemia. Young man said, well, if she's dying of leukemia, why don't you ditch her and go out and get some other fox who turns you on a little more? Bearded man hauled back and almost hit the guy. The guy said, excuse me, sir, you said there is no God. Well, if there is no God, there is no such intangible value of love. There's a sex drive. There's a drive to preserve the genetic pool. But there's no intangible, unseen, unmeasurable value of love. Then the young man pulled out of his back pocket a Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, we read that God loves you and me. He's a loving being. And when he created you and me, he gave every single one of us, regardless of what we believe, he gave us this innate ability to genuinely care, to genuinely love each other. Christ emphasized that so much that in answer to the question, what is the most important Commandment, Jesus said, love, 
the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But you see, according to Christ, love is not something you fall into and out of. That's being in heat. That's what that is. Instead, Jesus taught that love is a decision of the will to pray for, to wish, and to actively work for the well-being of another human being. And to be honest with you, that's what make my, makes my life go round and round. And to be honest with you, that's what makes everybody's life go round and round. And you know what's really ironic? What's really ironic is to hear people say, unless you can scientifically prove it, it's not true. That's a self-defeating line of thought. Listen to that statement. Unless you can scientifically prove it, it's not true. Really? Would you please scientifically prove to me that unless you can scientifically prove it, it's not true? No, you can't do that. You see, the statement, unless you can scientifically prove something, it's not true, is not science. It's a philosophy of science. And it's a philosophy of science that is self-defeating. It is so empty, it's scary if you try and live it out. I mean, I did meet a student at MIT who was dating his computer. Wow. Wow. That's sad. That is really sad. You and I, as gregarious human beings, are capable of loving each other, caring for each other, and giving our lives to each other. And I'm hoping that although you've been hurt, I know all of you have been hurt, as I have been, by people who have chosen not to love. And you've been hurt deeply, as I have. And I have hurt people by not loving. I hope that you have experienced from somebody a quality of love that has grabbed your attention and that is beginning to help you understand that there is more to life than matter and energy. There is this innate ability to genuinely care for another human being, to forgive another human being. And that is good. In fact, when you go home tonight and when you communicate with that person who you really love, you begin to understand that's what life is really all about. And if you come out of a home that's been split wide open by divorce, you know that God, who created marriage for a man and a woman to be committed to each other till death parts us so that they could raise their children to love, you know he's not stupid. You know he's not blowing smoke. Because you've been hurt by people who couldn't love each other. Now I'm asking you to open your mind to read the Gospels for yourself. Because if it's true that the being at the center of the cosmos really loves you, you've got to experience that love. I have a ton of respect for Fyodor Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist. And Fyodor Dostoevsky was sitting beside the bed of his wife. He had a mistress. He had left his wife. He traveled around Europe with his mistress. And then he found out that his wife was dying back in Russia. So Fyodor Dostoevsky went back home, and he got there, and his wife was dead. She had just died, and she's lying on the table. And Fyodor Dostoevsky is sitting there next to his dead wife's body. And all of a sudden, Fyodor Dostoevsky, the brilliant, brilliant Russian novelist, begins to grapple with the fact there is life after death. 
not because I've studied the historical evidence for the resurrection, but because I blew it with this woman. But I really do love her, and she really did love me. And because I believe there's a God who loves, I'm convinced that there will be a heaven where I will be able to reconnect with this woman who was my wife. And because I'm convinced that God is love, when you love somebody, you want to be with them. And the reason there's heaven, the reason there's eternal life, is not because it's a carrot that God dangles in front of your nose saying, be a good boy, be a good girl, and if you're good enough, you get the carrot. Whoopie-doo. No. The reason there's life after death is because when you love someone, you want to be with them. And that's what Dostoevsky began to realize. And so Dostoevsky began to realize that indeed there is life after death. Because I really love my wife. I messed with her big time. I was unfaithful to her. I committed adultery up one side and down the other. But you know something? She loved me. She stuck with me. In spite of how unfaithful I was, and by gollies, I want to be with that woman. And now I know that God loves me. I don't know that there's life after death. But I know that God loves. Jesus revealed that much, and I've gotten onto that. And now, because he loves me, he wants to be with me for eternity. Consider Christ carefully, very carefully, because he meets you at a depth of being that resonates profoundly. You don't have to worry about that. Um, but this subject come up, often comes up, and I'm often asked, was I a true Christian? Ray Comfort asked me this when he called in the show, and several other people have in different debates. And my answer is the same. It depends very much on what you mean by a true Christian. If you mean somebody who actually was in contact with, touched by the risen Christ, no. But I don't think anybody else is either, because I don't believe that that's possible. I don't believe that that's actually true. But if you're talking about, did I actually believe, was I convinced at the time that this was the case, then yes. But I'm not overly concerned about what, whether or not people think that I was a, a real Christian or not. I've tried tonight, over the course of these discussions, to respond to the points that Cliff made. And I would hope that people would see that that wasn't always returned. In fact, one of the things that Cliff did quite over and over again was, I'm going to give you a micro-sermon, and I'm going to repeat the same thing that I've been saying all day, which is, uh, without a God, everything's matter and energy, that uh, there is no love, there is no purpose, over and over again, even when I'd already addressed them. And why? Well, this is what he believes. Well, what evidence does he provide to point to this? Well, it's supposedly out there, but the evidence for all of this is because I believe, because I believe, because of this. We saw it at the end when he talked about Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky became convinced that there was an afterlife because I believe a God exists, because I'm convinced a God loves me, because I loved my wife and I want to be with her. That's not evidence for an afterlife, that's evidence for desire. There is no good evidence for an afterlife. No matter how much you want something, doesn't mean it's true. The truth of a proposition isn't in any way affected by the number of people who believe it, the sincerity of their convictions, the amount of time they've spent believing it, or how badly they want it. It's just not the case. And he trotted out a common phrase, until you can scientifically prove it, it's not true. I never said that tonight, nor did I say anything like it, nor would I, because that's not the way science works. Science doesn't prove things. Science doesn't prove anything. Science builds models 
that provide us tentative conclusions based on evidence. Proof is for mathematics. Proof is for things derived explicitly from the logical absolutes, not science. And why would anybody say if you can't prove it by, if you can't scientifically prove it, it's not true? Well, that is itself, he's right, self-defeating, but it's also a prop used by apologists to inject a fallacy. Because they have this in their head, a thing that I disputed at the very beginning, that atheism is the assertion that there is no God, or a claim that we could prove there is no God when that's not remotely the case. And so we have a big, long discussion. And if, if, if somebody had said, well, I won't believe it until you scientifically prove it to me, that would be a fallacy. Why say it? Because the implication is that my position is that I've somehow scientifically disproved God, which isn't the case. Haven't tried. Wouldn't try. I know science better than that. I know that's not what science does. Science is about going out and discovering the universe and coming up with the best explanations and changing those explanations when the evidence warrants it. Now, usually, when I have debates on the TV show or in public, if we get to a point where somebody's arguments for the existence of God have been backed into a corner and they don't know what else to do, that's the point at which there's an appeal to faith or personal revelation. And I'm fine with that. I can't debunk somebody else's personal revelation. I have no more reason to believe it than I do the other arguments that they do, but I can't poke holes in it because revelation is necessarily first person. Why am I not worthy of a Damascus Road experience? I asked that question in Kamloops, British Columbia when I was up there uh, doing a debate with a couple of theologians, and they did the same thing that many others have done. And they said, well, you just didn't try hard enough. Screw you. You don't know me. You are starting with your presumption that anybody who sincerely seeks with an honest heart will find, because you're convinced it's true. And since I didn't find, I couldn't be a sincere seeker. Well, I know some people who have apparently found God, and I know they didn't put the effort into it that I did. And I didn't begin as a non-believer. I began as a believer, actively working towards a position in the ministry and wanting God to reveal himself to me so that I could fulfill my obligations. I never had a bad incident with the church. I never lost anybody I love. I never was molested. I never had any sort of incident. I was a happy, rosy, slightly backslidden, let's get right with Jesus Christian. Nothing. Prayer, study, hitting up my minister friends, hitting up my missionary uncle, nothing. Crickets. So I go back to what I said earlier. People ask, what would change your mind? I don't know. I used to give glib answers about writing in the sky and stuff like that, but that's an incredibly arrogant position that I can tell the difference between some advanced technology or what aliens can do and what a God can do. That's, that's incredibly arrogant of me, that I could tell the difference. But what I do know is if there is a God... That God should, by definition or most definitions, know exactly what it would take to convince me, should be capable of doing what it would take to convince me, and has not, which demonstrates that either that particular God does not exist or does not want me to know that he exists yet. I tack the yet on because every time I do this, somebody comes up and says, I have the gift of prophecy, and I've just been told that you're going to have you know, the word of God revealed to you, and you are going to have the greatest ministry for Jesus ever because you spent so long as an atheist. If it happens, it happens. But I tell you this, if it does happen, 
it will definitely be the greatest because I'm not interested in anecdotal evidence. I'm not interested in appeals to emotion. I'm not interested in believing things because they're appealing. I am interested in believing things because they are demonstrably true. Not mm -hmm. if you can't scientifically prove it to me, I won't believe it. But if you cannot demonstrate reasonably with evidence and argument the proposition that you're professing, I have no reason to believe it, and neither does anyone else. Thanks. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Cliff, for taking time to uh, share your thoughts with us tonight. Thanks to all of you who have in, hopefully enjoyed tonight and heard some great debate. I want to thank uh, the student leaders with Chi Alpha that have helped in uh, producing tonight, as well as uh, Dan Matlock and some of the folks from Icon Church. And I also want to say a big thank you to Renee and to Jessica, who are part of the Texas State ITS team to help uh, with all the media and stuff tonight. Let's give all of these folks a hand. And of course, we again want to thank you, Matt, for coming down from Austin. We want to thank you, Cliff, for being with us this week and coming down from Connecticut. Uh, these guys did a great job. I know you're going to want to talk to them. Just as a reminder, we need to be out of here in 20 minutes. Welcome back to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. I really always enjoy listening to Cliff talk, and I hear other people like atheists who debate him. I always learn quite a lot. Honestly, I kind of hope you did too.
Um, it always fills me with hope, and I get to di have different perspectives, which I always deeply appreciate. Again, if you haven't done this already, go ahead and like and subscribe to Next Generation Saints wherever you're listening to this podcast. And until next time, we meet again. May God richly bless you all, my dearly beloved.